in Psalm 120. So you can turn there in your Bibles to Psalm 120. I'm going to read along. Psalm 120, a song of ascents. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, O you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach, that I dwell amongst, among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words from the psalmist and his attitude, his emotions, what's going on in his heart, that for many of us, if not now, but other times in our lives, it's the same emotions that we have felt, the same frustrations, the same anger. So, Lord, as we look at this psalm, as we ponder the principles of your word and the truths that you have to teach us, help us to understand. Help us to apply your word to our lives. Please instruct us in the ways that we should walk and live, that we may be pleasing to you. Please guide us now in Jesus' name. Well, we finished the book of Jonah last week, and um, I was looking at what I would preach next for evening services, and I decided that I wanted to um, to go through some psalms. However, uh, I wasn't going to go through all of them <laughs> next, and, and I, I, so I wanted to break them up. And so I was looking at which psalms I could... Um, preach um, for the next uh, couple months or so, and so I chose to do the Psalms of Ascents, <clears throat> and there's uh, roughly uh, 14 that s- specifically say a song of ascents in the, the um, superscription, the, the heading, and um, these Psalms were written... Uh, as almost like a, a song or a hymn to be sung on the way to the, the feasts that the Jews were supposed to go to in Jerusalem. They, they were uh, pilgrim songs. Um, they were worship songs. And, and uh, for those of you who don't know, the, the book of Psalms, it, it's uh, Israel's hymn book. It's uh, the Psalter. It's, it's what they... Sung and and some of them may have not been exactly put to music. Some of them may have been more of, um, say, <clears throat> uh, just something to recite. Uh, 
to, to catechize, um, um, but most of them were put to music. Um, and they weren't written in that exact order in which we have them. They, they were written, uh, for instance, um, Psalm 90. It was written by Moses. Um, that is what most believe is the first psalm that was written chronologically, and yet um, it's not the first psalm, it's Psalm 90. So they, they were arranged later in history, but they were arranged um, in, in a certain fashion. There's, there's five books in five sections, and, and this section is um, from 120 to 134 is uh, the Songs of Ascent. And uh, there, there's several commentators that, that speak about... Uh, these songs and how they are arranged and why they are arranged the way they were and, and their content. And uh, in his devotional commentary on the Psalms, um, Dr. Will Varner, um, he writes this concerning the Psalms of Ascent. He said, um, these Psalms are known as the Songs of Ascent. They are thought to be the songs that Jewish pilgrims sang when they went up to Jerusalem for the feasts three times each year the Feast of Passover, of Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths. Whoever made this selection chose four psalms by David and one by Solomon, while the other ten are anonymous. The Hebrew word translated ascents also means degrees. And for this reason, some scholars also relate this special collection to King Hezekiah and his experience of the sundial related in Isaiah 38, according to a rabbinic view, the 15 psalms mark the 15 years added to Hezekiah's life. And the 10 anonymous psalms are a reminder of the shadow going back 10 degrees. I, and many um, more contemporary uh, Bible teachers would not take that view. But he goes on to say this, the emphasis in this hymnal within the hymnal is on trusting the God of Mount Zion even in the midst of suffering and trial. The writers describe both the trials and the triumphs of the people of God and reveal that God is with his people no matter what the difficulty. And they, in a sense, the Song of Ascents kind of go in an order of, um, of somewhat of a trial and a triumph and then maybe a, a testimony and so this first one is, is sort of a, a trial. Um, Dr. Varner goes on um, talking about Psalm 120, and he says, Not every psalm in the pilgrim psalms was necessarily composed for the purpose of singing during a pilgrimage. The present psalm seems sharply personal, although in a pilgrim context it voices very well the homesickness of those who settled among strangers and enemies those Jews outside of Israel, the, what, what was um, referred to as the diaspora. He goes on, he says, The psalm, therefore, appropriately begins the series in a distant land so that we join the pilgrims as they prepare to set out on a journey which will eventually bring us to Jerusalem in Psalm 122. And in the last psalm of the group, we come to the ark, the priests and the temple servants who minister day and night at the house of the Lord in Psalm 134. So the order is kind of like um, those that are far outside of Israel 
outside of the land, dwelling amongst Gentiles, and then coming to Jerusalem, coming, traveling to, uh, to the city for the feasts, up to the temple. And, and as they get closer and closer, we see these songs will um, show that and show their, their attitude and, and, and what they're thinking and, and what they're dwelling on. And, and in this passage, in, in Psalm 120, uh, you see that it, it is kind of dark. You see the trial. You see the frustration. You see the anger that this psalmist um, writes about. He says he, in his distress, he called to the Lord. Um, he talks about lying lips, about a deceitful tongue. He, he, he talks about uh, vengeance, <laughs> almost. Um, there's woes. There's laments. And, and in this this passage in this psalm we see three responses of the psalmist to his circumstances three reactions to the situation and the people around him and, and first we see his prayers in verses one to two we see his prayers in, in my distress i called to the lord and he answered me deliver me O lord from lying lips from a deceitful tongue you see, his, his prayers, but it's really divided up into um, two parts, of verse 1 and verse 2. Uh, in verse 1, we see his assurance of answer. And it's, it's interesting because he kind of speaks in the past tense. And then he goes on in verse 2 in the following, uh, the following verses of the psalm to speak in the present tense. And... Some commentators wonder whether or not he's speaking about this whole psalm or he's speaking about past prayers being answered. Is he speaking of those prayers that he prayed in the past and God answered him and then now he speaks, um, he prays again? Or, or is he speaking about this prayer as if it had already been answered? And then he talks about what the prayer, um, what happened. And like, like he's telling us a, an event, a story that, that God answered his prayers. Because he says, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. And he goes on to say, to, to, to pray. But either way, either, either this is speaking of a, a prayer that he prayed in the past that God had already answered or or. He talks about um, his assurance of God answering his prayers and then prays, what, whatever that may be. This brings up a few points of application for us. And, and first is this, that in, in, in our response to distress or trial, the first application is that we have to ask our question, it, ask this question, is our first inclination in those instances of distress or trial, to go to the Lord in prayer? Or is prayer our last resort? Do, do we often try to, we, we find our, ourselves in a challenge or a trial, or, or even as this psalmist, it, that it seems like he's being slandered, he's being persecuted, um, he just wants to get out of there. Is our first inclination to try to figure things out on our own? 
Or do we immediately go to the Lord in prayer? And, and oftentimes, I, I know for myself that my, a lot of times my first inclination is to try to figure this thing out on my own. Try to figure out how, how can I solve this problem? How can I get myself out of this ditch? How can I, I fix the car, so to speak? How can I you know, uh, repair this part of the house or whatever the trial may be or um, fix this relationship? And yeah, sometimes I'm praying as I do that, but um, for many of us, we, we try to solve the problem first on our own before we go to prayer. And then when we... When we, when we have um, expended all our resources and tried everything, then we, we, in frustration, go to the Lord in prayer. But it seems as if the psalmist is, is teaching us that we need to first and foremost go to the Lord in prayer, to bring our, our challenges, our trials to Him. Second, do we take note of and remember answered prayers. Do we remember all of the ways in which God has answered our prayers in the past and has delivered us from trouble? Because right here, he, he asserts that, that God answered his prayer, that this is his confidence, his assurance that, that he will answer him in the future. And God always answers prayers. It's just whether or not that is a yes or a no or according to our time frame or what we want, he always answers prayers. So we learn that our first inclination should be to go to God in prayer. Second, that God does answer prayers. And, and third, do we trust God to answer our prayers in the present and the future? Do, do we really trust God? that he will answer our prayers. Sometimes our prayers are, are like a wish. They're not so much a request or said in confidence, but it's just, we'll, we'll see, we just wish. But we should pray always, we're to pray continuously, and we should pray in faith. So we, we see the psalmist, his assurance of answer in verse 1, and, and that, now we see his request for rescue in verse 2. He says, Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. And, and there could be one of two things happening here, or both. Either he is being directly slandered and lied about, or he just lives around a bunch of slanderers and liars. It doesn't say precisely. It just says, deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips and from a, from a deceitful tongue. It's probably, it's probably both and. He sees, it's probably the sense that he sees their evil and assumes that it's just a matter of time until they're spreading lies about him and all he can think about is to get out of that place before it happens. Yeah, he lives amongst liars. He lives amongst slanderers. And they're probably lying about him and slandering him as well. And Proverbs says a, a lot about the tongue, about wisdom. And Proverbs 12, 22 says this, that 
Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. And so you don't necessarily have to be lied about or slandered to be disgusted by lies or be disgusted by slandering. You can see it happening and, and just see it happening around you and see someone who is the victim of slander and, and lying and just be disgusted by it and, and just want to get out of that place. Some of us is probably, you know, you probably worked in, in workplaces and companies and, or, or been in uh, certain social contexts where that, that was happening. There's slander, there's lies, there's gossip. And e- even if it's not directed at you, you don't want to be around that. Proverbs 25.18 says this, A man who bears false witness against his neighbor is like a war club or a sword or a sharp arrow. It's almost as if those words you know, are, are beating you down, are cutting you, are piercing you. you know, we, we've heard that saying, um, sticks and stones may break, break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And, and that's not true at all. That words do hurt. Words can hurt really bad. Words, words can hurt years later, decades. Um, some of us can, you may remember some, some harsh words from a parent or a sibling that still sting to this day. Lies, slanders, gossip has the same effect. And perhaps there's some of us, we've been the target of gossip or slander. Had someone to, that has told lies about us. And from, you know, from a social perspective, we can, we can think of, of days in, in school and, and you know, when we we're young, and especially as teenagers, uh, this happens a lot. And, and that's bad. It's, it's hurting when, when this is happening in the context of a workplace, though, or if you're a small business owner who is being slandered, say, you know, even in our day and age where a lot of your, uh, a lot of your income, a lot of your marketing comes through the internet and places like Yelp, and you can be slandered, your company, your small business can be slandered on Yelp, you know, your livelihood is at stake, as well as that of your family. It's almost lying and slander can be life-threatening as some, in some contexts. It's bad enough in a social context with, with friends and, uh, and associates and, say, in school, but it's another thing in the marketplace. It's another thing in the workplace, and especially if it gets into the legal realm. It's not, and it's not just a loss of money and income, but the loss of your freedoms, Recently, in, in recent years, we can think of those uh, cake bakers, the photographers, the teachers and government workers who have not um, towed the line, so to speak, with um, you know, our progressive, sinful culture. And they've stood up for what is right. They've stood up for their faith. They, they said, no, this is wrong. I can't do this. I, I can't affirm this gay marriage or this gay wedding. I, I, I can't um, affirm what you're saying. Um, I, can't, I can't cheat. 
I can't lie. And so the people around us, they slander us. They gossip about us. And sometimes that results in a loss of job, a loss of um, income. It may result in um, a lawsuit. And, and this could be what's happening here in the psalmist. That, that it is quite possible that he was, he was a small business owner. He could have had a farm. He could have had some sort of trade, a fisherman, something that the lies not only hurt him personally, the slander not only hurt him, but his family, his livelihood. They, they, they meant a loss of income. J.C. Ryle said this concerning this psalm in, in his book, Expository Thoughts. He says this, The true Christian in the present day must never be surprised to find that he has constant trials to endure from this quarter. Human nature never changes. So long as he serves the world and walks in the broad way, little perhaps will be said against him. Once let him take up the cross and follow Christ, and, is, and there is no lie too monstrous and no story too absurd for some to tell against him and for others to believe. But let him take comfort in the thought that he is only drinking the cup which his, mass, which his blessed master drank before him. The lies of his enemies do him no injury in heaven. Whatever they may on earth be, let him bear them patiently and not fret or lose his temper. When Christ was reviled, he reviled not again. Let the Christian do likewise. Let it never surprise true Christians if they are slandered and misrepresented in this world. They must not expect to fare better than their Lord. Let them rather look forward to it as a matter of course and see in it a part of the cross which all must bear after conversion. Lies and false reports are among Satan's choicest weapons. When he cannot deter men from serving Christ, he labors to harass them and make Christ's service uncomfortable. Let us bear it patiently and not count it a strange thing. The words of the Lord Jesus should often come to our minds, Woe unto you when all men speak well of you. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. We, we can see the truth in it. That if we live for Christ, if we live righteously, and, and sad to say that um, a lot of times it's not just living for Christ, it's, it's just being moral in our day and age. Just, just being a moral person, can, you can receive flack, you can receive uh, gossip and slander and um, lies against you. We see this in the, this psalm. We see this frustration, this anger within the psalmist's words. And the words of Jesus ring true. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you. And say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. But, but it's not just that you are being lied and slandered and uh, and, and, and gossiped about, but 
that's happening because of who you are, because of what you stand for, because of who you believe. Jesus goes on in that passage on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, and he says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Jesus uses two metaphors here concerning the Christian, concerning the believer, that we are salt. And salt does two things. Um, first, it's a, it, 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 it's a flavor enhancer. It brings out the flavors of the food. It, 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 bring, it, it makes it bold. It makes it tasty. Um, too much is too bad, but salt has an effect. Salt is used in almost every, every type of dish. Almost every recipe includes salt because it enhances the flavor. Salt is flavorful. But in the ancient world, salt was a preservative. And it's still a preservative. And, and how Jesus uses this metaphor of salt is that we are to be salt. We are to be bold and flavorful, but we are also to be a preservative against the evil and the corruption in this world. And, and if we are living the way we're supposed to and, and acting and, and speaking the way we're supposed to, we will, in a sense, expose the evil of this world for what it is. We will, we will in a sense, be that check against evil um, spreading. Which brings us to the, the next metaphor he uses of light. Light exposes darkness. And if we are the people that we are meant to be and we let our light shine then we, we will expose darkness. And sometimes it's not just, it's not because of what we say at all. It's just because of who we are. And people in the workplace or at school or, or whatever social circles we, we mix amongst, if they know we're a believer, if they know we go to church, if they know what we stand for and, and our morality, just our presence will upset people. It, it, will, it, it will be a check against their, their evil, against their, their bad language, against their, their foul mouths. And then when we leave, they will, they will slander us. They will lie about us. And, and this isn't just true for us as Christians, but this was true for the Jew living amongst Gentiles. That... They knew he was different. They knew the psalmist uh, did not come from there. They knew he was part of the nation Israel. They knew that he would be making his journey to worship in Jerusalem. And so he was the object of lies and slander. So we see in verses 1 and 2, we see his prayers. We see the psalmist's prayers, his and his assurance that God will answer, and his request for rescue. And then second, we see his desires in verses 3 to 4, his desires. What shall be given to you? 
And what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. We, we see his, his heartfelt desires. Not, not just that he is frustrated over, being, over um, being lied against, over being slandered. And, and, and if it's not even directly against him, it, it's around him. He sees it happening all around him. And maybe other people around him are being lied about or being slandered. There's deceit. And so his desire, his heartfelt desire is first and foremost that for something to be done. That, that something would be done about this, about this, this lying, this deceit, this slander, this evil. What shall be given to you and what more shall be done to you? His questions here are most likely setting up for what comes next in verse 4. But there's also the sense that he is expressing his desire for justice. And that something has to be done about this injustice. And we can see this in our day and age. We, we see this in the, the immorality within our culture. We see this in, in the ideas that are being spread about. We see this in what's happening in our schools, in our universities, and just the evil that is spreading almost at light speed now. And, and we think in our hearts and in our minds that something must be done. Something, somebody has to stand up. Somebody has to put a check against this sin. And, and, and even when there's a tragedy or there's, say, a, a, a serial killer or, or um, some sexual perversion, something that happens that it seems as if this person may not get charged or, or the court case may go on and on or he, he may get off and we... Something within, within us wells up that righteous indignation that says something has to be done. Something has to be done. And, and, and most of us have, have felt this. We have expressed this over the, 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 this frustration, over the evils in our society, the, the evils in our own personal lives that... that Something must be done. Justice must be done. And it, even, even amongst many unbelievers, they, they, they long for justice. Though they have a skewed sense of justice, there's still a desire for justice. And we long for a day when all wrongs will be made right. And we hope that it, it would happen soon, that we would see it. The psalmist, he, he, he prays for this. He longs for this. He is frustrated over the injustice. And then so then he goes on, and his desire is not just that something would be done, but that there would be swift justice. Verse 4, a warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. And, and, you know, we, we don't, for most of us, we, we don't have broom trees around us, or we don't know what a broom tree is. But in their day and age, the, the broom tree was used for charcoal because it held its heat, and, and it, it lasted long. And so what he, he's, he's meaning here is that 
there would be fiery arrows, that there would be sharp arrows that, that would be fiery and that they would not only be pierced, but the, 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 the criminal would not only be pierced, the liar would not only be pierced, but that there would be burning with it. This, was, this is intense, swift justice. The psalmist is contemplating his enemy's retribution, or rather his, his just punishment, and that he would see it, that he would see it done in his day. In his commentary on the Psalms, um, this Old Testament scholar Franz Delish writes this. He says, The evil tongue is a sharp sword, a pointed arrow, Jeremiah 9, and it is like a fire kindled of hell, James 3, 6. The punishment, too, corresponds to this, its nature and conduct. Another commentator writes this, The deceitful tongue is compared to a bow whose arrows are the words, and to fire. And then he goes on, he says, By the law of lex talionis, that's Latin for an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, that law in the Old Testament. He says, according to this law, the adversaries must receive God's judgment likened to a warrior's sharp arrows and to burning coals. Because that is what the deceitful tongue is likened to in the Old Testament. In a few different Psalms and in Proverbs, it's likened to fire, to sharp arrows, to a sword. And so because the deceitful tongue is like this, this is what the deceitful tongue deserves. The deceitful tongue deserves warrior sharp arrows. It deserves glowing coals of the broom tree. This, this makes me think of, you know, those times when, you know, either you're being lied about or you're being slandered or, or you're just being made fun of. You know, those times in the workplace or in school. It makes me think of, of you know, just having the perfectly timed, well-placed, and witty comeback <laughs> that not only refutes your adversary's error, but puts them in their place and shuts them up so that they never say anything wrong about you or anyone else again. But for me, and probably for most of you, that's never happened because usually someone makes fun of you or they lie, lie about you or they slander you, and, and it's almost as if a shock. You just your jaw drops. You don't even know what to say. You you go away from that instance, from that circumstance, from that event, and you think, "I wish I would have said this," or "I wish I would have said something," or "I wish I could have just thought of the perfect comeback, the perfect saying that would would um, not only exonerate me but put them in their place so much so that they would be afraid to say anything bad about me or anyone else ever again." And though, you know, it, it's, it's sinful in a sense to think malicious thoughts towards others, it's not sinful to be angry over sin. It's not sinful to desire justice to be done. And, and this is where we get that, the, this concept of righteous indignation versus sinful anger. Sometimes it, it's hard to distinguish. It's just as I... Used to when, when I was an army chaplain, I used to counsel soldiers, and I used to tell them, um, 
Killing is not a sin, but murder is. And sometimes they'd be, well, well chaplain, what do you mean? <laughs> and then I had to explain, well, it's all about your heart, where your heart is. Do you, do you really want justice? Are, are you angry about the things which God is angry about? And if that is true, then, then that is righteous indignation. But if your anger is all about you and about your comfort and about your honor, then that's sinful. In, in Psalm 139, and, and you can turn there, one, Psalm 139, David um, he writes about all these attributes of God and, and just the greatness of God and his, his omniscience, his omnipotence, his holiness, how he knows David intimately. And, and he, he talks about all these attributes of God in Psalm 139. And then he gets to, to, to verse 19, and it, it's almost as if the 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 record scratches and it skips so to speak and, and and you know like like you hear the screeching tires of the car and and everything there, there's this 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 rapid and violent shift in the psalm and he says this in verse 19 of psalm 139 he says oh that you would slay the wicked O god O men of blood depart from me they speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. And here's the thing. Those few verses in Psalm 139, that's Scripture. David, he, he's not sinning when he speaks those, those words. What, what's happening is prior, in the 18 verses prior, he is so um, enamored by the glory of God and the greatness of God that in his prayer, his will and his mind and his heart is being aligned with God, so much so that he thinks as God thinks and he feels as God feels and as a the Psalm 7 says that God is a righteous judge who feels indignation every day. That God is, he hates sin. And he not only hates sin, he is furious over sin. And if our will, if our minds, if our hearts are aligned with God's, then we will hate sin as well. We will be frustrated at it. We will be angry over it. We, we will desire for justice to be done and we will pray that justice would be done but but not so much that we would live more comfortably but that god would be honored and, and we pray for justice for the sake of justice and and for the sake of goodness and for for god to be glorified this is part of the psalmist's desires so we we see his prayers in verses 1 to 2, and then we see his desires in verses 3 to 4, that something would be done and that there would be swift justice. And now in verses 5 to 7, we see his laments. His laments. First, he laments over his position, where he is at. And this is not a specific place so much, but that he would... he. 
he laments that he is not where he wants to be. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach, that I dwell amongst, among the tents of Kedar. These two places, we can see these two places in the Bible. And, and what's interesting is they're not in the same place. They're, they're in a sense, polar opposites of one another. Uh, I, one is on one side of Israel, Meshach to the far north, and, and Kedar is to the south. So there's, there's no way that the psalmist could be in both places at once. It, it's figurative. The Old Testament scholar and Hebrew professor Dr. Barak says this. He says, Meshach was a warlike people residing between the Black and Caspian Seas northeast of Israel. Kedar was a belligerent tribe in northern Arabia. Both peoples were looked upon as hostile barbarians. The psalmist lives amongst a pagan and hostile people. What he's saying is, is not necessarily that he is in Meshech or that he is in Kedar, but he's saying wherever he is, that he's amongst people like that. And, and certainly it, it could allude to and could be in response to uh, Jews that were living in those places. But it, it's almost expressing the emotions of, of every believer and every Jew that is outside of Israel that is living amongst pagans. It's, uh, and maybe not even just pagans, but people who are acting like pagans. And we could, we could have the same emotion, the same attitude. Woe to me that I live in a pagan culture. That I live amongst people who think that women can be men and men can be women. That call evil good and good evil. Woe to me that I live amongst people that think it's a fundamental human right to be able to murder your own unborn child. Woe to me that I live amongst the people who want to indoctrinate children in sexual immorality and lies concerning gender and reality. This is the attitude, this is the emotion that the psalmist is feeling here. Woe is me. I, I, I can't deal with these people. I don't even know where to begin. I don't even know where to address them or how to address them. They're just utterly evil. And all I want to do is just to get out of here. He laments over his position, where he's at. And then he laments over his company. And not over the company he works for, although that may be one of your laments. You lament over the company you work for and the people you work for. But he laments over the people that he is around, the company that he is with. Verse 6, too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. And it may be that it's not that they hate peace in general. Because certainly, um, you know, for many evil people, many criminals, they, they, they like company as well. And they, they gather in gangs and they have their friends. And, and they're at peace with those who are like them. But they hate, they hate the, the concept of peace 
of, of the, the true definition of peace, of the peace that God gives, of, of what God defines of, as peace, as the Hebrew word here, shalom, which isn't just peace in the, in the terms of an end to hostilities, but shalom means prosperity. It means harmony. It means all is right and good with the world. All is how it's supposed to be. All is in alignment with God and how he created the world. This is, this is what they hate. They hate what God, hate, what God wants. They, they hate what, what God desires. They, they're anti-God. They're against God. And so they're not only because they are against God, they're against his people as well. The psalmist laments the people around him. He's in a sense saying, I've lived here too long, and the first chance I have to leave, I'm going. I'm getting out of here. I've had, an, I, I've had it up to here with these people. And I can't wait to leave. I can't wait to get out of here. I can't wait to go to Israel, to go to Jerusalem, to go where God is worshipped, where things are right, where there's justice, where there's holiness, where there's wisdom. And so there may be a sense of nostalgia here, of remembering his time in Israel and his time in Jerusalem or his time during the last feast that he, he went to. Or it may just be that he, he just wants to go in general, that he's never been to Jerusalem, he's never been there, and so he, he just wants to go. Whatever the case may be, he just wants to get out of there. And he wants to go where things are right, where people act the way they're supposed to, where God is honored. So he laments over his position. He laments over his company. And last, he laments over his treatment, over the way he's being treated. He says, I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. It's almost as if he's saying, like, you know, I could, in a sense, keep my head low. I could keep my mouth shut. I could just stay away from these people, but I can't hide who I am. I can't um, not say something. I can't be quiet about this evil and this injustice all around me. I have to stand up. I have to speak. And when I speak, I speak those things which make for peace. He has repaid evil for good. He speaks peace and they want war. And, and right away, it, you know, if you're thinking what I'm thinking, you think about the gospel. You think about evangelism. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. You, you know, we, we desire sinners to be saved. We desire sinners to come to Christ, to, to understand who God is, to repent and believe upon Christ for salvation, to know the greatness of salvation, to know um, what it is to have eternal life, to, to have that hope, to be forgiven of their sins, to, to see the world as it really is, to see themselves as they really are, to be washed and cleansed from all your sins, to be forgiven. And we desire sinners to know this, and so we proclaim the gospel to them, but in proclaiming the gospel, we must first proclaim the holiness of God and, and the, the, the punishment they deserve in hell for offending this God whom, 
who has created them. And in proclaiming the gospel, we, we, we give them terms of peace with God, so to speak. And, and for the most part, the gospel is rejected. And we give them these, these terms of peace, which God has given us and told us to give to others. And we, we give these terms of peace to other sinners. And, and once they hear it, they bristle against it. Their pride wells up in them, and they, in a sense, says, no, I won't have it. I won't bow the knee to Jesus Christ. I won't repent. I refuse it. And so, because they cannot war against God, they war against us. And yet, we are called still to proclaim peace. We are called to be peaceable. Romans chapter 12, after Paul lays out the, the, the gospel all through um, Romans chapter 1 to, to 11 and, and the greatness of this gospel, and then he, he tells um, the Romans how they are to live in light of the gospel. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 17, he says this, he says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And this is, in a sense, in line with this psalm, that, that we can still pray and long for justice, and that justice would be served, but at the same time, not repaying evil for evil, but offering terms of peace to evildoers, telling them that they need to repent or else they will face God's justice. They will face his vengeance. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That they need to repent now and turn now. Turn to Him now while they have time. Charles Spurgeon has a passage on this psalm in his morning and evening devotional in which he writes this. He says this, As a Christian, you have to live in the midst of an ungodly world. And it is of little use for you to cry, woe is me. Jesus did not pray that you should be taken out of the world. And what he did not pray for, you need not desire. Better far in the Lord's strength to meet the difficulty and glorify him in it. The enemy is ever on the watch to detect inconsistency in your conduct. Be therefore very holy. Remember that the eyes of all are upon you and that more is expected from you than from other men. Strive to give no occasion for blame. Let your goodness be the only fault they can discover in you. Like Daniel, compel them to say of you, we shall not find any occasion against this Daniel except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Seek to be useful as well as consistent. Perhaps you think, if I were in a more favorable position, I might serve the Lord's cause. 
but I cannot do any good where I am. But the worse the people are among whom you live, the more need have they of your exertions. If they be crooked, the more necessity that you should set them straight. And if they be perverse, the more need have you to turn their proud hearts to the truth. Where should the physician be but where there are many sick? Where is honor to be won by the soldier but in the hottest fire of the battle? And when weary of the strife and sin that meet you on every hand, consider that all the saints have endured the same trial. They were not carried on beds of down to heaven, and you must not expect to travel more easily than they. They had to hazard their lives unto the death in the high places of the field, And you will not be crowned till you also have endured hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Therefore, stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. And we, like the psalmist, we can cry to the Lord in our distress. We can ask him to rescue us. We can can pray for justice to be done, for justice to be swift. We can lament our position in our company, in our treatment. But at the end of the day, we need to rest in his sovereignty and his providence and be the people he has called us to be and speak those truths he has called us to speak and leave the results up to him. It's interesting that, you know, in, in the end, the psalmist says, I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. And the psalmist's frustrations throughout this whole psalm are proof that he has peace. They're proof of his peace, his peace with God. You know, one of the key indicators of salvation that someone has been born again is that they pray. And not because they feel that they should pray or that it's the right thing to do, but because they desire to pray and they need to pray and their prayer aren't their, their prayers aren't rote repetitions of scripted phrases or biblical truths or what they heard before, but they are honest, heartfelt desires that bubble up and come out of them to God. However, more than their desire to pray in the content of their prayers, the greatest indicator of a, par- of a person's salvation is a desire for God, a desire to worship Him, to be where He is, to see Him, as he is. And this is what we see in the psalmist. This is what we see in Psalm 27, verse 4. And David writes, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. This is the psalmist's desire. In the beginning of this song of ascents, in all the songs of ascents, this is his desire. To be where the Lord has manifested his presence. To be amongst his people. To be in his temple. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And my question to you is, is that your desire? Is that your heartfelt desire? To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And though, yes, there is no temple today, but we, in a sense come into his presence amongst his people in the church? Is that your desire? And and if not, why not? Could there be anything greater and more glorious than God? 
The Bible says that there isn't anything greater or more glorious than God. And logic says there can't be because God created all things. And if he created all things, then he is greater than all things and, and he is better than all things. And so if, if he, he is not the greatest desire of our heart, what does that say about the condition of our heart? We should have the same desire as the psalmist does. To seek him. To know him. To worship him. And if that is not our desire, then maybe you should examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. And do as Isaiah said, to seek him while he may be found call upon him while he is near, to let the wicked man forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and return to the Lord, for he will abundantly pardon. The call to all sinners, to all people everywhere, is to come, to come to the Lord, to seek him, to know him, to worship him. These are the terms of peace that God lays before all people. And if we won't accept his terms of peace, then we will receive his terms of war. And he will inflict upon us his divine justice forever. So the call is to seek his peace, to know his peace, to long for his peace, and to proclaim his peace. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this song thank you for these principles that are laid forth in them. These principles of justice, of prayer, of righteousness, of hope, of peace. Peace with you. Help us to be people of peace that proclaim your peace to others and to desire you and to long for you and to worship you to honor you with our lives for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray, amen.